0: Uh, <clears throat> the last night of this event, he and this other songwriter got up and just sort of impromptu, they were asked to do this, played some of the songs they wrote. It was great. One of the songs that he played was a song that actually Miranda Lambert picked up and uh, and, and made her own. It's called The House That Built Me. I, I'd never heard the song before. And I had that funny experience when I heard him sing it of, and this is why we need songwriters, it... it verbalized this thing I had felt about my old house, and uh, whenever I go back to my hometown, I will typically go by one or both of the houses that I grew up in. It's like, I'm 51, and there's still some unfinished business between me and this house. And I I had never, maybe there's other songs about that, but I I had never heard a song say it that way, and it just got me that feeling of, I thought I was walking around (laughs) with those feelings by myself, and it turns out somebody put put words to, to my feelings. Psalms can do that. In fact, really, psalms are supposed to do that. And they can put words to your great joys, your great celebrations, great worship and thanksgiving, and sometimes to real deep lows and sadness. This psalm that we're about to look at, Psalm 10, is a lament. It's, it gives words to sadness and, uh, and dismay. And in particular, if you're here this morning and you have felt that tension of either of saying, okay, I do believe that God is God, and I do believe that God is in control, and He controls everything, or you're at least saying, well, I, I know that the Bible claims that that's true. Maybe I'm, I'm not sure yet, but I know the Bible says that. But I'm looking around at the, at the world, and there's just so much evil. And, and there's evil with children, and there's evil with the elderly, and there's evil with everybody in between. And there's evil in rich areas, and there's evil in poor areas. And I, I feel overwhelmed by global news. I feel overwhelmed by local news. And, and why doesn't God do something? And I want you to know that, that not only is, are the Scriptures not frightened of that question, it actually gives you words to express that. This is a song to say that. Um, if, if you feel overwhelmed by the tension of evil and suffering in the world, and I thought God was powerful and loving then this psalm is to give you words. Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten, he has hidden his face, he will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account, but you do see. For you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands, To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless. And the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, as we continue to worship you and hear your Word, we ask that you not only show us yourself, but that you help us. We feel overwhelmed by evil. And tragedy, by trauma, by brokenness. It's right around us. It's in our city. It's in the upstate. It's American. It's global. Uh, Please cause your word to have its way with us, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I have a friend acquaintance who uh, several years ago was working in Cambodia. We have a church member who's in Cambodia now, Emily Whitley, but this is another friend. And uh, like Emily, she was working some with women who have experienced trafficking in Cambodia and uh, trying to address that as well as educate about that. And when she was abroad, she she kept a blog so that people could know what she was doing and, and even would show photos of where she works and so well, several years ago, she posted a, a blog post. It's called, uh, She Wore Blue Pajamas. And I want to read you just a few parts. She talked about she was waiting for her, uh, the guy, the, the tuk-tuk driver, the guy that pulls the, the cart that you sit in and go somewhere. Uh, he, he was late, so she's on a street corner. We were stopped at a red light on a street I wasn't familiar with when something caught my eye. It was a little girl in bright blue pajamas. She was about eight years old, barefoot, and she had a long ponytail. She held her father's hand as they walked together down the driveway toward the street. With his other hand, the father was on his cell phone. They reached the end of the driveway, about nine feet from me, just as another younger man pulled up on his, she calls it a moto, I guess like a moped, also on his cell phone. They hung up when they saw each other. Clearly, the father had been giving directions to the moto man how to find them. The little girl stood behind her dad as soon as the man drove up. It reminded me of the times when I was young and I would shyly stand behind my father when meeting strangers or new people. The two men spoke back and forth. A negotiation was made. Then the moto man pulled out his wallet and handed the father some money. Uh, The father pocketed the money, picked up his little girl, and placed her on the back of the moto. These few moments felt so surreal. It took a moment for me to realize what was happening. This father was selling his daughter. I attempted to get out the Khmer words. No, please no, don't do this. As loud as I could speak amongst the revving engines beside us at the light, the little girl looked over at me and then back up at her father. Reaching out to clasp the front tail of his shirt with her hand, he batted her hand away saying, I will see you in three hours. Be happy. Uh, Let me read this other part. As has been the, uh, the theme of my time here in Cambodia over both good moments and bad, I wept. I wept because I felt helpless. I wept because the very thing I've come here to fight happened right in front of me, and I was so completely frozen in shock to actually see it occur. I wept because I felt guilty that I should have gotten out of the tuk-tuk and grabbed her myself, no matter what danger I could have found myself in. I wept because I felt dirty for what I knew was happening in those next three hours, but mostly I wept and am weeping now "...because my heart is broken. It is broken by the darkness of sin in this world, broken by a man who thinks little girls are just things you can buy for your own pleasure, broken by a father who sees his precious little girl in new clean pajamas, not as a gift to be loved, but as a product to turn a profit, broken by this brief moment I saw the life of a little girl whose life is not valued, whose childhood is gone." And whose own father gave it away. Next sentence: I believe that God is sovereign. Because I believe this, I know that tonight was no accident at all. Now, that is a difficult tension, and uh, and it, and it was moving to me to hear it—not just you know a, a a stat about trafficking, but but the experience of a, of a friend watching it. Uh, this psalm is a lament. It's a lament about that the world is just shattered. And And when I say that, I don't want you to hear me saying that there's nothing good in the world or that God made a bad world. God made a beautiful world. And the creation still reflects His beauty and His goodness and His generosity, and we should embrace that. But the world is where... Fallen people live and do their fallenness. Uh, You know, to to borrow a phrase from a friend of mine, the earth is where lost people are being lost and doing their lost thing. And when you look at it, it can be very overwhelming. Again, whether you're looking at the local news or global news. So I want to look at at two things in the psalm. First off, how, how do things look to the oppressor? to the one that the psalm calls the wicked. How do things look to him, and then what's the reality? Because things aren't always the way they look. And then secondly, how do things look to the helpless, the ones that the psalm calls the helpless, and then what's the reality? So let's start off with the oppressor. Um, Five times in this psalm, he's called the wicked. The wicked, that's a biblical category. It's those who... Reject God, do not want God, don't need God, don't follow God. How do things look to the wicked in Psalm 10? I'm, I'm going to group it under three things that he's saying to himself. The first thing he's saying is, the strong survive. It's, it's almost like he's, he's doing Darwinism before there's Darwin. That there's, there's survival of the fittest, there's opportunity for me in my desires, whether the desires are sexual or financial or power or whatever, that I can get my needs met through the weak. So where do you see that? Look in verse 2. In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Go to verse 3. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. So this is all about what he wants, what he wants and thinks he needs. And then go down to verse 8. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. Survival of the fittest. I'm going to pray on the weak. So first thing, the strong survive. Number two, I'm getting away with it. No lightning bolt is falling. Nobody's hauling me off. I'm getting away with it. Look in verse 6. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity, which leads him to the next thing, which is what? God is a joke. And and there's this interesting tension in here in that On the one hand, it says he renounces God, and on the other hand, it says that, well, I know that God won't call me to account. So there is no God, but I know that God won't call me to account. One commentator said, he's an atheist, but he's not good at it. Uh, Look in the second part of verse 3. The one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Verse verse, uh, 11. He says in his heart, God has forgotten He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Look in verse 13. He says in his heart, You will not call to account. Now that's how it looks to him. The strong survive. I'm getting away with it. God is a joke. Now what is the reality? Look in verse 5. And it's interesting the way this is written because if you take the middle phrase out of verse 5, it just sounds like it's talking about how bad the wicked are. If you took the middle part of verse 5, it says, His ways prosper at all times. As for all His foes, He puffs at them. Smirks. But what's embedded in the middle of verse 5? Your judgments, God, your judgments are on high, out of His sight. In other words, He can't see it, but the divine judgments are already in place. And then get this one. Look in verse 14. This is very understated. It says, you note mischief and vexation. And that might sound like a little bit of a letdown. We're talking about global evil, terrible things done to children. And it says, you note mischief and vexation. That could, it almost sounds like God with his you know glasses and a clipboard saying, okay, terrible things. <clears throat> terrible things over here, March 10th, 2019. One thing I've noticed, I don't know if other countries are this way, but it seems like the American military is really good at this, at giving very dangerous things, sort of innocuous names, very low-key names. And one example, this, this might be a more famous example because of the, uh, the, the Osama bin Laden raid. Seal Team 6, the elites of the Navy SEALs, do you know what their official name is? Naval Special Warfare Development Group. They're just developing stuff. Uh, you would never want them to develop anything special regarding you, unless it's your rescue or extraction. Uh, ask anybody that they've developed something for. Uh, that that When you know what they do, what they're capable of, where they operate, that word development... Like, is loaded. When the psalmist says, God, you note mischief and vexation, what he's talking about, there's a parallel, actually in the book that we just finished, Hebrews, it says in Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all must give an account All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God sees everything and notes it, remembers it all, and his judgments are in place. The wicked can't see that. How do things look to the victim? And uh, the, the victims are given... Different names, different, there's different identifications in this, in this psalm. You get the poor, uh, the innocent, the afflicted, the oppressed. It talks about the fatherless, which we're thinking about this morning. The special burden of God, the fatherless, are mentioned twice in this psalm. I'm going to just kind of lump all that together with another one of the terms that's used several times, the helpless. And here's the thing. For most people in this room, I'm not saying I know everybody's story, but for most people in this, in this room, you have means, and you know how to get justice. You have resources. You have recourse. You know people that can help you out. You have social capital. I mean, You, you and I, for the most part, have not experienced what it's really like to be helpless. Like, that girl on the back of that moped is helpless. All right, this is about the helpless. And and by the way, I looked up just out of curiosity the website of a local nonprofit that works with children uh, and and, um, young adults who are trafficked. And it said, if you're going to understand trafficking in our area, mean, you're talking about South Carolina, the upstate, you've got to understand supply and demand. And when they're explaining who the supply are, of those who are trafficked, the first two they list as being at risk. Runaway children, kids in the foster care system. So, all right, how do things look to the helpless? Because this is not an abstraction. The first should be obvious. It looks like we're being hurt. Uh, Look in verse 10. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by His might. That's not God's might. That's the oppressor's might. So, what do they do? And that's where you get verse 1. Because verse 1 is the question that you have to ask, and that is, doesn't God care? Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And, and I, I want to hit this head on, that for those who have... either just kind of have heard a caricature of the Christian faith, or maybe they've heard about it and they're thinking about it, one of the greatest, maybe the greatest obstacle, or what some people would call a defeater, is the coexistence of claiming that God is all-powerful and God is love and the existence of evil and suffering in the world. And not being able to reconcile those and finally saying, well, then the whole thing's incoherent. I can't deal with that. That's how it can look. What's the reality? I've already said this, but I want to underscore this. Look in verse 14. You do see. Speaking to God, you do see. For you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. And just connect the dots from that little phrase... That you may take it into your hands to another phrase from Hebrews, from the New Testament. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Look in verse 17. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. What's the reality that neither the oppressor nor the victim can really see? God is seeing and hearing everything, clearly and soberly. But you've got to attach this last part. And that is that what they can't see is that God is king. He doesn't feel like king. It doesn't look like he's king to the oppressor or to the victim. Verse 16, The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Now, what does that mean? That God is king? Because if you just say, Well, that means that God is all-powerful and he rules over all then we're back, we're back to where we started. Is that well? If he's all powerful, if he's king over heaven and earth, why doesn't he jump in and do something? And I, I want to, I just want to go straight through the front door on this one. The question that we cannot answer is why does God allow the level of evil and suffering in the world that He allows? I've never heard a satisfactory answer. I can't tie it up with a bow. Does that mean that's all we can say? No, because here's what you have to understand about this king. When we think king, we think power. This king stripped off his divine appearance and comes into the earth. See, there there are no poor, there are innocent, but there are no poor, there are no afflicted, there are no fatherless, there are no helpless in heaven. And God is certainly not any of those things except innocent, pure. But he strips off his right to look like God and be treated like God. And he comes into a world, and he doesn't just enter it and sit in a palace and make divine pronouncements about how he should address the evil and suffering in the world. But he becomes poor. And he becomes afflicted. It's crummy to grow up in a Jewish peasant in a Roman-controlled world in the first century, and that's right where he plopped himself. He becomes poor. He becomes afflicted. He becomes oppressed. And finally, at the end, where somehow all the anger of Rome and of Judea has converged on one person, at his death, he is the one person that we can say was totally, completely helpless. Because Not only have those who are supposed to be His friends abandoned Him, but even if you're abandoned, if you're one of God's people, God is your help, but on the cross, God is not His help. As He bears our punishment. And here's the thing, when He does that, not only does He take away the sin and the guilt of all His people forever, but He breaks the power of sin in this world. He doesn't make it all disappear overnight, but he breaks the power of sin. And when he talked about his ministry, when he, when he went into a synagogue where he grew up, he unrolled the Isaiah scroll to a passage to read about coming to do justice. I don't know if you saw the reflection in the front of the bulletin. It's from an old, almost a 200-year-old and it's based on a psalm, and it's about Jesus. And it's talking about the work of the Messiah. It says, uh, He comes to break oppression, to set the captive free, to take away transgression and rule in equity, to rule in justice. Our king stripped off his king robes to enter the broken, tragic world to take away guilt and sin and break the power of sin. That's what kind of king he is. So what do we do with that? Well, a couple of things. One is we pray. The psalm is a song and the psalm is a prayer. I, I just, I'm so appreciative that Gary said throughout his, his comments that for him and for Heather, their family, this began and continues to be something driven by prayer and calls us to pray. And and here's what I want to say about this prayer. The reason this psalm can be helpful to you is I want you to compare verse 1 and verse 16. Look at verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Then verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. Same psalmist, same psalm, says both. Why is that so important? Because if you only hang on to why, O Lord, do you stand far off and you let go of Him being king, then you're going to become depressed (laughs) or despondent or cynical or just kind of give up on the whole God angle. If you only hang on to the Lord is king and you let go of why, O Lord, do you allow these things, then you become shallow. You're kind of a person with a charmed life going, "Ah, isn't it great that God is in control? Isn't it great that God has got the whole world in His hands? It's Psalm 10 that lets you hang on to both and say, Lord, this world is breaking my heart. I don't know why one child on this earth of yours would go through that. And you are king. It's not either or, both and. It was interesting, that friend that I quoted, the way she ended her post was a call to pray. And let me find it. Here's what she says. Friends, could you do me a favor? Take a moment right now to pray for the little girl in the blue pajamas. Pray for her safety and for her heart to be protected. Pray she will not let the hurt, abuse, abandonment she must be feeling right now define her as worthless, jaded, or hopeless. Pray God will save her from the story she has been forced into. Pray for God to intervene and that she will come to know Jesus Christ. Pray that one day she will be able to believe there is a father who will never leave or forsake her, who loves and cherishes her as his precious child. Now that would have been fine, but then she kept going. But here's the really tough part to pray. Pray for the moto man. Pray for her father. Pray God will wreck their world, be it with the arm of justice or the arms of Christ. Those two men need the very same gospel you and I need every day. And the infuriating thing about that is that she's right. If we believe that the Bible is true, then we must believe there is no sin too great or too dark, that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot cover. What a story of rescue that would be, a little girl, a pedophile... And a greedy, cold-hearted father set free from their bondage and ushered into the kingdom of God. We're to be the people that pray about that. You know, in our community groups, if we're going to do life together, if we're going to share life, we've got to pray about our jobs, our work, uh, health, relative. This is hard in my family. This is hard with a kid. Uh, we've got to pray for those things. We should pray for those things. But we're to pray for the vulnerable. And that leads to the second thing, uh, is that we are to be godly. And I've quoted this before, and I'll end with this, but the best definition I ever heard of godliness was by Sinclair Ferguson. He's a Scottish theologian, pastor. He used to be at First Pres in Columbia, South Carolina, till recently. And this is his simple definition. To be godly is to be like God. It's not just a lot of Bible reading and a lot of prayer, although all of us could stand more of that, but it's to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. And God hates injustice. And throughout the scriptures, there's this recurring, recurring theme that He has a special heart for the poor and the fatherless and the widow. And the orphan. Does that mean everyone here is called to adopt a baby? No. Does that mean everybody here is called to do foster care? No. But to be godly is to figure out how can I somehow support or walk alongside or participate in the care of those that God loves so much? And listen, let's not do that to feel good about ourselves and post about it. The reason to do it is because God rescued me. And so maybe I could, in some small way, participate in someone's rescue. God saw me, and in all the ways I was going to inconvenience Him, He pursued me. And so maybe in some small little way, I could pursue someone whom I wouldn't naturally know, go to bat for this person for whom God has a great heart. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that despite all that we see, and please help us not to look away from the unpleasant things, but to look at them to move toward them. But despite all we see, would you convince us that you are king? That you see, that you hear, that you note mischief? That you will do justly? Your king has come. Your king will come again. Father, cause us to love what you love. Change our hearts. Break through our love of comfort. We pray for that girl who's now, I'm sure, a teenager. That her story would be one of rescue and redemption. Being adopted by a father who loves her forever. We don't know her, but you do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.